morning. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And this is also a great day to enjoy the summer solstice. Yesterday was the longest light day of the year and the official first day of summer. So, uh, by the way, those of us in Phoenix are not all that excited about this being the first day of summer. It's hot. I feel like we should always invite Nellie down on this day. Hot in. So hot in here. But anyway, good morning and welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. As Lord, he is 100% deity. He is a member of the triune Godhead. He is God the Son. He's also 100% human, just like you and me, and his name is Jesus Christ. The Lord, God the Son, became flesh, Jesus Christ, and he lived among us. He is the uniquely born one, the God-man, 100% God and 100% man and one person forever. He is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the Savior of the whole world, and he is the Jewish Messiah. And those of us who make Baram Ministries their spiritual home are Christians. We are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. As a matter of fact, religion is the enemy of Christianity. And the Lord Jesus Christ is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a thing. The Lord Jesus Christ is not a concept. And just as we do with anyone whom we love, we spend time getting to know the Lord by knowing his mind And the Bible is his exact thinking, and that's why we come together on a regular basis to study the Word of God. God also has an enemy. His name is Satan, whom the Bible calls the ruler of this world. And the reason the Bible calls him the ruler of this world is because he is the ruler of this world, and it doesn't take a stretch of your imagination to wonder why there is divisiveness in the country. You know, we talk about, oh, we need unity. Yeah, we're the United States of America, yet there's been divisiveness in this country and in the world forever. And you'd have to scratch your head and wonder how God would be the sponsor of such disunity. He is not. He allows it, but that sponsor of that disunity is his enemy. And your enemy and my enemy, Satan, he is the ruler of this world. He is a deceiver who deceives the whole world and who does not want you to get to know God. And his best strategy against the human race is religion, which tries to convince you that you have to do something to impress God. And on your best day, you couldn't do anything to impress God. We don't have to be impressive to God. God is impressed with us because he created us, and we're happy about that. The word of God, the truth, keeps us aware of Satan's insidious schemes. And without the truth of the word of God, we are defenseless. And as believers in Christ, in union with Christ, we have the victory over Satan through the Lord who has overcome the world. Today's Bible lesson, to marry or not to marry? That is the question. To marry or not to marry? That is the question. Well, the Apostle Paul thinks it's better not to marry. Well, that's because he was single and celibate. And for those of us who've been married, we, we agree with his wisdom. <laughs> it's probably better not to be married. But 
For those of you who are single and looking forward to marriage, what do you think? For those of you who are married, how would you advise single people about marriage? In today's lesson, the Apostle Paul finishes out his, uh, his thoughts on that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with some sound advice. And so that's what we'll be studying today. All right, so let's begin the lesson with some music. A huge missing piece from my life was my father. He left my mom 30 days after they got married when she told him that she was pregnant. And so this 38-year-old woman had four children under the age of 11, two of them under the age of two, and was making $14,000 a year. So there's no part of me that has my father in it other than the genetics. Which are pretty good, by the way. He had some some good genetics. But today, we celebrate the fathers who have earned the right to be called dad. And if there is a standard to which human fathers can aspire, it's articulated well by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Here's what he says. He says, you children are a love letter written in the hearts of your fathers a letter known by all men and read by all men. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. And it is being, being made clearly visible that you are a letter of the Christ as well, cared for by your fathers. And you are a letter, not written with ink, but you are a letter written with the indwelling Holy Spirit of the living God, a letter not written on tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments, but a letter written on the tablet of human hearts. Fathers send forth their Christian children to reflect the Savior after training them up in the way they should go. And every year, we play a song from Luther Vandross Jr., who wrote this song in tribute to his father, Luther Vandross Sr., who died from the complication of diabetes when young Luther was only seven years old. And Luther Vandross Jr. recalls growing up in a happy household filled with dancing. And his mother was quite surprised at the accuracy of the vivid memories Luther captured in this song, memories that she was surprised he could recall from such a young and tender age. Here's Luther Vandross Jr. with our Father's Day favorite, Dance With My Father. Back when I was a child For life removed all the innocence My father would lift me high And dance with my mother and me And then spin me around till I fell asleep Then up the stairs he would carry me And I knew for sure I was loved If I could get Another chance Another walk 
Even though I didn't uh, grow up with my dad, I spent the last 12 years of his life getting to know him. And uh, it was funny. We would be sitting in a room, and we would think that the lights should not be on in the room. And we'd get up at the exact same time to go turn off the lights. So there's some strange things that go on in... uh, in the relationship between a father and son. I remember the day that he died one year or one month after his 80th birthday. He had lung cancer and he died of pneumonia. And the last, his last words on the earth were, bitch, bring me a blanket. He was talking, <laughs> he was talking to the nurse. And then he just, he died, which was classic, my dad. 
So, uh, interesting man, Roy Joseph Clark. And I'm Rory Joseph Clark. My mom put the R in the name just to irritate him. But that's the way my mom was. <laughs> so anyway, I have a whole bunch of bags back here with Father's Day things. And in the, in the bag, one of the things is a Snickers bar. So whoever did that, just want you to know it's got a lot of love for you. Because that Snickers bar is not going to last the day, believe me. It is not going in my refrigerator, so somebody at my house can end up taking that. All right, anyway, let us pray. (laughs) We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of studying your absolute truth, the Word of God. Father, thank you for being the best dad to all of us, especially to those of us whose human father didn't stay to fulfill his responsibilities. And thank you for your unconditional love and for your grace and for your forgiveness. And thank you for thinking so much of us that you sent your son to provide a way for us to have the victory in the creator-creature conflict. Father, we pray that you provide the resources to help fathers learn to do their jobs. We pray that you sow into their hearts the seed of being so that they will be as interested in raising their kids as they are in their careers. And we pray that you give fathers the, the secret to fathering like you do to protect, to plan for, to provide for, and to be present with their families intentionally. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, to marry or not to marry, that is the question. I couldn't wait to get married because I started planning for my children when I was 19 years old. I, I worked at a day camp for a couple of years, and I was counseling five- to eight-year-old boys, and I was eager to practice out all my fathering techniques that I'd be using about 13 years later on these little Jewish kids in Chicago up on the north side. So to marry or not to marry, that wasn't even a question for me. But we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul the apostle who wrote wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, begins addressing problems brought up to him in the form of questions by Chloe and other people concerning the believers in Christ in the church at first century Corinth. And just so you know, Corinth was the Las Vegas of its day. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. And Paul is interested in correcting some of the erroneous thinking that's being housed in the minds of these new believers in this, this, this place of absolute sin and debauchery, God plopped down a Christian church right in the middle of it. And that is how he always does things. And we're always worried about, well, this Jesus Christ stuff is all well and good here in the United States, but what about the little children in the middle of Africa? And I, I think, uh, Mary, we, we can tell them that they can relax, right? The little children in the middle of Africa are getting a lot of information about the, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, aren't they? And so uh, we don't have anything to worry about. The Lord always knows what he's doing. He has all the power, and he uses that power to get his message to people. No matter where they are, no matter what their circumstance in ways that make sense to them, in their language. He's amazing. And so, you know, we don't have to worry about or doubt whether our God is doing his job. 
So Paul is correcting the erroneous thinking of this, these new believers. And we've studied uh, chapter 7, which is the first chapter in which Paul starts to address the problems in the church. The first six chapters of 1 Corinthians surfaced some of the problems, and now he is starting to address the problems. So the last part of that is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40, and we'll get through that passage today. And so Paul has some advice to the unmarried, He has some thoughts about the end times. He has a case for celibacy, which means being single and not having sex, which was his his thing. He has some advice for the fiancé, and when fiancé has one E, it's a reference to the male, and then to the widows. So that's what we're going to be studying today. Let's listen to the final passage of the chapter and then we'll go into the study verse by verse. So first to the unmarried, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning virgins, and you know, when we think of virgins, we always think of females, but this, this as easily applies to males as well. So now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. 1 Corinthians seven twenty six. I think then that it's good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. 1 Corinthians seven twenty seven. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't seek a wife. 1 Corinthians seven twenty eight. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. As to the end times, beginning at 1 Corinthians 7.29, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. 1 Corinthians 7.30, And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy, as though they did not possess. 1 Corinthians 7.31, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. 1 Corinthians 7.32 begins the case for celibacy. But I, Paul, want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.33, But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. 1 Corinthians 7.34, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. All right, then to the fiancé, which is a betrothed male. Betrothed means engaged. Here's what Paul has to say to the fiancé, the engaged male. 1 Corinthians 7.35. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.36. But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter... If she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. 
1 Corinthians 7.37, But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. 1 Corinthians 7.38, So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. And then finally to the widows. 1 Corinthians 7.39, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.40 finishes the passage. But in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. Well, as you know, you are the luckiest congregation on the face of the earth because you have a pastor who reads and writes Koine Greek. And the New Testament is written in Koine Greek. And every expression in the language, Koine Greek, has one and only one interpretation. So Koine Greek is, without question, the clearest language in the history of mankind, and it is easily translatable into any other language. The, the New American Standard translation of the Bible... And it is a translation, not an interpretation. But the New American Standard translation has had a committee, and the committee went back to the original languages and translated it into English, and this is the result. I've been using the New American Standard translation for years, you know, like, I don't know, 35 years, because it is the most faithful to the Greek. And this is the first passage that I've ever seen where the translation committee of, of this particular passage just didn't get it right. They completely missed what's going on in this passage. So if you're sitting there and you're going, what the hell is this saying? That's exactly what I was saying when I started studying. Like, what is it? What? What's he saying? So aren't you lucky that you have? Can I get an amen that you're lucky? Aren't you lucky? That in today's lesson, I'm going to tell you what the hell's going on in, <laughs> in this passage. And it took forever, and especially the next to the last portion of it. I, I studied that for five hours before I finally figured out what he was saying here. And it was a lot of going back to the Greek and finding out what's going on. So we're going to do that uh, after we take the offering and have our break. So when we return from our five-minute break, we'll take your offering, and then we'll see what advice this passage provides. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. Told I belong at the end of the line with all the other not quite, with all the never get it right. But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul ever since you read. 
had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight You picked 12 outsiders Nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil Start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm, I'm just a nobody
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, to marry or not to marry, that is the question. Well, newsflash, part of your giving goes to pay a small salary to your pastor. And I've been teaching the Word of God for well over 20 years, but I've only received a small stipend in the neighborhood of $400 a week for the past two weeks. Isn't that amazing, 400 bucks a week? I'm thinking that's about $12 an hour. Not too bad. I, I am aspiring to get that up to $13 an hour if I can. The, Apo- <laughs> the Apostle Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11, If we pastors sowed spiritual riches in you through teaching you the word of God, is it too much to ask if we reap material things from you? And, of course, the answer is no. It is not too much to ask. Pastors should be paid. Your contributions go to serve the world, but they also reward your pastor for his diligent work on your behalf. For the reward, I say thank you. And let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with the offering message. There it is. Good morning. I'm Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Bra Ministries. And Bra Ministries is a worldwide Christian church where real, peop- where real people come to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God. I know. I should change that up. It's hard to say. And I was missing June today. She's usually giving me the dogs, so <laughs> releasing the dogs on me. But uh, so as we've been studying, you know, Corinthians, we've seen Paul trying to talk to. It's like trying to talk to people that live in Vegas to not to not get into disputes and not go gambling and not not go to the strip clubs or shows or whatever it is that their vice was. And really, he's just trying to pull everybody out of all those splintered mentalities in life and just have unity. Unity of soul and unity of the church. And we see that with the lesson on marriage. Like um, a marriage without sex is not a very good marriage. You think about a cake without sugar, it's not going to be a very good cake, right? Is that cake going to connect with anybody? Is that cake going to get spread around the room? And everybody's like, no, stay away from the cake, right? It's kind of like a car without oil. It might run for a while, but it's going to seize up on you at some point. And it's like a camp without counselors, right? Who's going to counsel those little brats running around? Who's going to thump them on the head when nobody's looking, right? <laughs> it's like, my hair hurts. <laughs> to teach that one to my kids. But, you know, it's, and today, like today, it's a family without a father. That family's going to be missing something. It's going to be missing that unity and that guidance. And so I thought possibly the worst is a computer without Internet. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> No, right, though? I mean, because a computer that doesn't have Internet, it can't, it can't connect. It can't connect with anybody. It can't spread a message. You can't spread what you're talking about. And so it's really missing a link, you know? It's like a marriage without sex is missing that link to really have true, literal unity. That's true unity. And it's really like a pastor without pay. He's going he's gonna to leave us, guys. We need to step up. <laughs> but, I mean, and, you know, my final kind of example would be like a church without giving or a Christian without the gospel. And so I'll leave you with Acts 3.6. This is Peter. I think he was, he was healing. Didn't he heal a, a leper or something at this point? Uh, but anyway, the point of the story is Acts 3.6. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. So he was out giving the gospel to people. And they were asking for money and asking for handouts. And he certainly had money because I'm sure he was supported. 
and he could have given them something, but he didn't. He gave them the gospel, and he said, walk in Jesus, right? So that's what we can do. We can give. We can remember to have unity with the world and give and say, walk with Jesus. It's, it's really easy to say. We charge you here so that you can, don't have to charge yourself out there and pay. And the final verse, Matthew six twenty one, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So, I mean, what, what do you really treasure? Do you treasure this? Do you treasure a relationship with Christ? Then that's what you give to. And you think about it, giving at the offering is almost like making a deposit in heaven. You're just making a deposit in heaven. It works supernaturally here. It gets the message out. And look, we're reaching um, parts of Africa, parts of China. We're, we're, we're international. We're all over America. We've got people in Idaho and Washington and Chicago and Detroit, Pennsylvania, New York, Texas. I don't know who else I'm leaving out, California. We've got all kinds of people everywhere. So every time, everything you give really helps, and it really matters. And so thank you for always giving it the offering and supporting our pastor and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you, Deacon Denny. Today's Bible lesson, to marry or not to marry, that is the question. To marry or not to marry, that is the question. Well, actually, the Apostle Peter had a lot of silver and gold. What he was referring to in that is that I, didn't have any, I don't have any with me to give, but he was, all of the apostles were very wealthy. Uh, Peter and his brother Andrew and a couple of others ran the fishing industry of the day. And so they were very wealthy people, and so that was cool. All right, so welcome back. Paul continues to address the question asked of him in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. I wanted to do, say uh, welcome to our guests. And uh, so Nico and Christina, you're welcome here. And uh, we usually ask our guests to stay about eight lessons because I usually tick them off right in the beginning, uh, telling them something they don't, they don't like. And uh, it takes about eight 
eight lessons to really get used to hearing the truth because we've all been deceived by Satan's lies here in his kingdom and it's just really different to hear what the Bible has to say about what's really going on in the world and uh, we're always glad to share that so welcome glad you're here all right so Paul continues to address the question that was asked of him in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 let me remind you what that is now concerning the things about which you wrote and he's talking about Chloe's people And whenever he starts now concerning in chapters 7 through 16, it's that he is going to be pointing out specific things that he's been asked. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, such as, isn't it the highest, most virtuous good for a married man not to touch a married woman? This is a group of people in the church who were married and celibate and who were trying to pass that off to everybody. Isn't it? We don't have sex, even though we're married. Isn't that the best? No, it's not. It's goofy. And so the problem, I think, with the translation as it gets down into verses 25 to 40 is if we forget the context and the thing that he was answering in the beginning of this. And I think the translation committee got a little lost. And it's easy to get lost if you don't keep in touch with what the original question was. So that was the original question that Paul was addressing. And the rest of the letter, the rest of that chapter is specifics on that idea. So first of all, to the unmarried, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. He says, now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord. The Lord's not speaking out on this subject. But I give you wisdom coming from an apostle, a person with the spiritual gift of apostle, who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy and faithful as the Lord's mouthpiece. So that's one of the cool things about being a pastor. Is It's that there are a lot of times when God is very explicit in the Bible about what he thinks. Do not marry an unbeliever. That's very explicit. There are other times when he expects us to take the things that we're, he is explicit about and then make some implicit assumptions that are completely consistent with it. You know, for example, if, 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 you, if, if you know that God is unconditional in his love toward people, then which people wouldn't you be unconditional toward? You'd be unconditional to everybody, wouldn't you? Now, he doesn't say, maybe he doesn't say right out loud, please have unconditional love for black people. But you can make the connect, can't you? I was just watching this morning uh, a special on Robert F. Kennedy. And it takes you all the way back into the 60s and the time when Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and the two Kennedy brothers were killed. And, of course, that was the the very impressionable time in my life when I was in high school. And I can remember vividly where I was when each of those assassinations occurred. And I can remember very vividly how emotional that was for me. And I remember that when, when President Kennedy was killed, I cried for a week. We were off from school for a week, and I cried for a week. I was probably eight years old, and it was on TV, and it was just so sad. And my sister, who was about nine years older than me, would just stare at me, and she says, why are you crying? 
you don't even know him. And I looked at her and I said, please don't impose your lack of emotion on me because I'm emotional. This is sad. And when I reflect on it, that was the day the United States died. And it's been slowly dying more and more ever since. And it's just sad. It's sad. It's so sad that there are actually people in the world who think that they're superior because of the color of their skin. That is so bizarre to me. But you know what's even more bizarre? That the people who have the different color skin think they're inferior. Where did that ever come from? Why would you ever think that you were inferior because of the color of your skin? Why would you think you're inferior because you were a slave? Slaves are strong. Slaves aren't just strong physically, they're strong mentally. Why would you ever think that you were inferior? You're out picking cotton, which is the worst thing you could do in life because it cuts your hands up. And you're picking the cotton for people who are sitting in the house doing nothing. And you're inferior? I don't think so. I don't think the people who work in this world are inferior in any way. I think they're amazing. Why don't they think that? Why don't we think that we're amazing when we have to work three times as hard as everybody else to just be equal? Why don't we think that that has a a form of superiority, superiority in it that we would not lord over anybody, but that we would be proud of? And I'm from the hood. I'm from the ghetto. And I'm black. And nobody has ever let me forget that. You're colored, you're a Negro, you're black, you're a nigger, you're a spook, you're a jigaboo, you're a person of color, you're a minority. Okay, I get it. I'm nobody. That's why we play that song at the break. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody all about somebody who saved my soul. Come on, sing it with me. No. (laughs) That's why we play that song. See, because I'm not confused. I know I'm nothing. I know I'm a nobody. I know I came from nowhere. I grew up in a 925-square-foot house, and 300 of those square feet were a basement that was flooded all the time. I grew up in a shithole. I'm proud of that. I am proud of that. And when I went to St. Ignatius High School, which is one of the hardest best high schools in Chicago, for three straight years, the people there told me I didn't belong there. And you know what? They were probably right until I got a 99 in Latin. The highest grade you could get was 99. I got a 99 in Latin, which is the hardest subject in the school. And all of a sudden, I'm walking around my report card. I don't belong here? Huh. I got a 99 in Latin. (laughs) Maybe I belong here. And then I went to Northwestern and found out that I didn't belong there. One of the ten best universities in the world. I didn't belong there either. And was one point from flunking out after two quarters. And my brothers and sisters tell me I, I was lucky. Lucky. I stayed up all night just to eke out that D 
that if it had been an F, I would have gotten kicked out of the school. And then the last two years, first honors every quarter. Because it usually took me two years to figure it out. That work is superior. That pain is amazing. I've worked with thousands of executives all over the world during my life, and the executives that I hate working with the most are the ones who've never had their asses kicked. They don't have texture. So why do we feel inferior? I don't feel inferior. Nor will I ever feel inferior. I feel grateful. I feel grateful that my Lord and Savior gave me a skin color that has, has had me spending the most of my 65 years rejected. I'm grateful for that. Because I, kn- I know he knew what he was doing. And you know, when you come from the ghetto, there are only three choices. Death in the grave, death by staying in the ghetto, or life. Make your pick. But nobody's going to hand you anything. You've got to work. You've got to step up your game. And it hurts to step up your game. It's hard to step up your game. And there isn't anybody going to be standing there, oh, yeah, man, go. Nobody's standing there doing that. My mom didn't even do that. When I went to graduate school, my mom was mad. She was mad that I went to graduate school. Because her dream was I was going to graduate from Northwestern. I got offered a job at WGN-TV for $36,000 a year. And we were going to live together and we were going to combine our money and we were going to get out of the ghetto. Only problem is I'm not her husband. That wasn't what I was interested in. And she was mad that I went to graduate school. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with. And it's just funny to me that we would even, that we would ever think that way. And so I'm lucky because I get to be the Lord's mouthpiece about stuff like this. And it's not here. You know, you're not going to open Okay, let's turn to uh, Obadiah chapter 1. All right, when COVID hits, whatever COVID-19 is, uh, please press on. It's not in here. It's not in here. But what am I going to tell you? Your body did not forget how to deal with the flu because somebody came on TV and said so. No, I'm not wearing a mask. And no, I don't like breathing my own carbon dioxide. No. We're not going to die. But there are people in this world who are scared. They're scared that they're going to die from a flu. You are not going to die from a flu unless you're 90 and you got COPD and you get a flu. We got to... We got to be able to think for ourselves. We got to be able to live. And so that's what we're trying to do. When we study the Word of God, we're trying to live. All right, so Paul, shifting to the specifics, 1 Corinthians 7 25, to 
the virgins. Now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give you wisdom coming from an apostle who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy and faithful as the Lord's mouthpiece. All of us need to be trustworthy and faithful as the Lord's mouthpiece. We take in the word and we make some conclusions. Some of the things the Bible says are explicit. Some are implicit. 1 Corinthians seven twenty six. So Paul continues, I think it then that it's good in view of the present difficulties, and I think the difficulty at that time was there was a famine in the land. In, in view of the present difficulties, I, I think it's a pretty good idea for a man to remain as he is and not to make dramatic life changes. All right? There's always a present circumstance. We have a present circumstance. It's the same Paul advice Paul would give today amidst the COVID-19 scam. I feel a bit bad for the millennials. Why? Because they want to grow old and they may not get a chance to do so. This may be the time when we're moving closer and closer to the rapture of the church. Right? And so one day you may wake up as a millennial and get plucked off the earth and not get a chance to get married, not get a chance to have kids, not get a chance to grow up. That's a reality. That is a possible reality. And I feel sad for you because of it. Because I want you to suffer as much as I did getting married and having kids. Amen? (laughs) But, you know, you guys want to grow old. But Paul would tell you in the midst of this present crisis, just maintain the status quo. Just remain as you are. You know, my kids, are, my boys are under 40 years old. And if, if I had my way, if they ever would, would stoop to listen to my inferior advice, I would tell them, don't get married before you're 40 years old. Don't. Just find out who you are first so you have something to give to somebody else. Amen? Yeah, Zachary, back in the back, he gives me this look like, that's like whack, Dad. Okay. I get it. I didn't think you were going to take my advice. That's like, that's like whack. But, yeah. No, he, he absolutely says whack. It, it, things are either whack or dope with him. You know, oh, that's, that's like dope. I don't, dope was always bad in my generation. I don't know. All right, now. Paul talks specifically to men, 1 Corinthians 7, 27. He says, are you bound to a wife? And what he means is by an engagement promise, a betrothal. Don't seek to be released. So he's saying, hey, maintain status quo, so don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Don't go looking for a wife. And the Greek says, don't go, go, don't go on a hunt. Right? Because that's what men do. We want to hunt for a woman. Ah, I will find her. I will conquer. So that's great advice from Paul to single men. To marry or not to marry? Paul says if you're not married, don't. 1 Corinthians 7.28 But if you, a male, marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin, female, marries, she has not sinned. Yet if you men marry, you will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you that trouble. Now, Paul is doing a couple of things here. One of the things is he's probably addressing some legalistic lie with this verse, which is the assertion that it's sinful to marry. It is not sinful to marry. Why is marriage a lot of trouble? Well, in my view, marriage is trouble because it's unity. 
you know, people deceive themselves. Okay, we live together, so we're practicing marriage. No, you're not. You're two flesh. When you marry, you become fused. You are one flesh. And Satan doesn't like unity, and he attacks it. And you will always hear people who lived together before they got married, once they get married, say the same thing. Everything changed. Yes, it did, because now you're attacked. Now there are forces in the world that want to destroy your marriage, and Satan is very successful at destroying marriages. Six of ten first marriages, seven of ten second marriages, eight of ten third marriages end in divorce. Why? Because Satan's masterful at getting people divided. You go over to Europe, what do people say about marriage in Europe? Ah, it's just a piece of paper. Yeah, right. Fusion is not a piece of paper. It's a soul experience. It's a serious experience. And when you divorce, it's torn flesh. It's brutal emotionally. So... The need to engage Satan, the enemy of God, attacks unity because he hates unity. The need to engage with the world to make a living brings trouble. That's what Paul is saying in verse 28. You get married, and now you've got to make a living because you've got to support some people, and that brings trouble. And anyone who's married or who has been married and is no longer married will tell you that being single is easier. I will tell you that. Being single is easier Contemplating marriage is asking for trouble. Amen? The millennials are staring at me. They're mad. They're really mad now. Right? I want to get married. Shut up. Okay. I want you to do that. I want you to do that. Come on into hell. Because marriage is hard. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's all he's saying. He's saying marriage is hard. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2 has a suggestion for all of us as Christians. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are here on earth. Just realize this. That does not mean completely move your mindset to eternity. We aren't living in eternity yet. So that's not what he means. He means that the things that are going on here are passing away. So don't get too attached. You know, one of, the, one of the big questions that Jesus was asked, if a guy marries this woman and dies and then she marries somebody else, which one of the guys is going to have her in heaven? And the Lord said, there's none of that marriage stuff in heaven. Don't worry about it. They're only souls. You're all going to be married to me. I'm the groom and you're the bride. Amen? I like being the bride of Christ. Setting our minds on earthly things carries, uh, setting our mind on earthly cares only is a big problem. As believers in Christ, our serenity comes from having an eternal perspective. We are in this world, but we are not of this world, so we must not let the cares of this world bog us down. We have to keep our eyes on the fact that this is only part of the journey of our eternal life and that we have a glorious future in, in store for us. And the way to look at it is the way parents, if they're in their right mind, look at things. When they're raising kids, that's just a period of time. It's 21 years, and then they launch. And they launch to have their own families. 
Now, most parents don't see it that way. Most parents love interfering with their kids' lives as they get older and older. That is not my desire. It's like, okay, at 18, you went to college, go away. No, you can't live with me. Out. Grow up. Get a job. Do it on your own. That's the way we're supposed to do things. So the raising of kids is just a period of time, and it's not something to get attached to. And, boy, you want to talk about a person who was attached to it. I was. 1 Corinthians 7.29, regarding the end time. But this I, Paul, say, brethren, and whenever Paul is talking about brethren, he's talking about believers in Christ. The time has been shortened. What does that mean? It means Christ's victory at the cross has made the future certain. As believers in Christ, we know what's next. What's next in divine history? The rapture of the church. This age, which is the fourth age of six, this age will end with all believers being plucked off the earth. It's called the exit resurrection of the church, the rapture of the church. One day, you're going to be sitting around. If you're lucky enough to be a part of the rapture generation, you'll be sitting around, and you will be in heaven like that. You will be up in the clouds meeting the Lord in the air, First Thessalonians, all right? And then that age will be over. Then there's a 1,007 years left. Seven years to finish the age of Israel, which is called the tribulation period, the worst period of time in human history. Thank God none of us who are believers in Christ will be around for that. And then the thousand-year millennial reign where Christ reigns on the earth, and we will be reigning with him, but from Jerusalem hovering above the sky. Awesome. So we have a great future ahead of us as believers in Christ. So this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened. We know what's next. So that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. In other words, that they should have the eternal perspective that marriage is temporary and not eternal. Marriage is temporary like raising kids is temporary. That's what he's saying here. Romans chapter 7, verse 2 reminds us of this. The married woman is bound by law to her husband while he's living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. What does that mean? Everything ends here on earth, but the soul once born never dies. We just get to choose where it spends eternity. So don't get too tied up. And what's going on here on the earth? This is what, 80 years? 90? For me, 120? 120. Are you for that? <laughs> I, no, I want to stick around. I got a lot to do. So world experiences and world lessons like marriage pale in the light of eternity. Our identity as Christians is with Christ and not with worldly things. 1 Corinthians 7.30. And those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. In other words, we're not to let the ups and the downs of life define us. A lot of things happen in life. Some parents lose their children. Their children die. That's a down. Sometimes we have a tremendous success. That's an up. But we're not to let those things define us. Those who buy 
as though they did not possess. We're not to let work and possessions be our focus. That was the one thing as a father that I was not going to allow. I was not going to allow my career to come in and swallow me up so that I didn't have time to raise my kids. I was not going to do it because I, I planned for them, I provided for them, I protected them, but the one thing that I wanted more than anything else is present with them. And that's the, the thing that, you know, my kids can say anything they want about me, and they usually do. He's whack. But they can't say, <laughs> you like that, Zach? But they can't say I wasn't there because I was there the whole time. And we were together, and we have a relationship, and that's amazing. And men need to do that with their kids. Work is not more important than kids. Matthew chapter 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And that was what I had to decide. I could be a billionaire. At what cost? Because you can't take the money with you. So at what cost? And everybody who, who is poor is always thinking, I, boy, if I got wealthy, it would be great. Well, what happens to all the lottery winners? Three years after they win the lottery, hundreds of millions of dollars, and they are broker three years later than they were when they won the money. Why is that? It's right here. Money is a mentality. And what is the first thing we want? You know, the, the, as a kid, what was the first thing I wanted? I want to buy my mom a house. Get your own self a house first, dog. You got to have some place to live. And I bought my mom a house. It was awesome. It was right across the street from my house. And you know what she did? She moved right back to the old folks' home and out of that beautiful house. She told me for years, I want a house in a nice neighborhood where the neighbors don't bother me and where I can be close to my family. She got it. And she stayed there eight months. She said, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to go back to the old folks' home, the place that's overcharging me. Okay. All right, so there goes that dream, right? I had this big dream of what I was going to do for my mom, and here she goes. She goes, yeah. All right, cool. And that happens all the time. Why? She has free will. She has the right to decide where she wants to live, what makes her comfortable. I don't have any right as a son to impose my viewpoints on her. I wanted to, though. I thought she should have the best. She was happy with what she had, and so be it. So, yeah, I could have been a billionaire, but for what? The billionaire who doesn't know who his kids are? No thanks. When the Lord comes back for us, he doesn't want us to be distracted by things. And as Christians... We are in a constant state of detaching from the world and its entanglements. That is so much fun. That is the fun thing about getting old is because you start to realize that all the things that you thought were so important as a young person aren't important at all. Because this life boils down to just a few things. You know, Snickers bars. When I was a kid, I liked jawbreakers, but now it's Snickers bars. You got to put, got to detach yourself from the jawbreakers. Amen. All right. So Christians know what matters. 
We're not confused. We're not running around like chickens with our heads cut off. We're not worried that God is going to take us out with the flu. God's much more creative than that. We are not fear-based. We are not afraid. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says this. Oh, I missed a verse. And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it, for the form of this world is passing away. There it is. Christians know what matters. We're not confused. We're not running around like chickens with our heads cut off. We're not worried that God is going to take us out with the flu. We're not fear-based. We're not afraid. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says this. Our citizenship is in heaven. As believers in Christ, our citizenship is in heaven. We are not of Satan's kingdom. We're in Satan's kingdom. From which heaven also we believers in Christ eagerly wait for the return of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I'm going to go make a place for you, and then I'll come back and get you. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and get you and bring you to your mansion. And I can't wait for that day. Now, none of you guys will be in my neighborhood, per se. Because <laughs> I'm going to be up on a hill, you know. But your mansion will be cool, too. <laughs> Can I get an amen? All right. So we are in this world, but not of this world. And the things of this world do not define our lives. Eternity does. So how should we look at the world? We should look at the world as a classroom to learn Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, we being believers in Christ. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So when we get the covid 19 crisis and they tell us you should be afraid and you should wear masks and you should blah 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 we say jesus christ is still in control of the universe he's not gonna take me out like i'm a punk i went over to mayo clinic on friday to have some routine health tests and have you had a fever in the last two days no Have you been coughing? No. Who doesn't cough? I cough every day. I'm lying to them. Yeah, I cough. Have you vomited? Yeah, but I think it was the six glasses of wine I had, though. (laughs) Put on this mask. Put on this sticker and stay the hell away from everybody. Okay, great. And the doctor comes in. He's giving me his elbow. I said, if you don't shake my hand, I'm going to punch you in the face. There's a sink right there. Go wash your hand right after me. You're shaking my hand. Seriously. We've lost our minds. The world is constantly seeking to shift our focus off of Christ. They will not be successful. We cannot allow it. This world is passing away. Thank goodness there's going to be a time when we don't have to deal with this stupidity. Imagine what heaven is like. As a believer in Christ, you close your eyes in this life, you're absent from the body, you're face-to-face with the Lord forever, and there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. All this crap dies, and the new creation things come. Wow. Thank goodness. And we can sit around, and we can ask who killed Kennedy, and who killed Martin Luther King. We get all the truth. Finally. 
No more lies. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 says this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. The earth and the universe as we know it will be destroyed. And you will have a resurrection body that will withstand the blast. And you'll be sitting there, and on the 4th of July every year, you watch fireworks shows. That's a precursor to the greatest fireworks show ever when the earth and the universe are blown up by our Lord and a new earth and a new universe is created and that new earth and new universe, the earth will not have any seas. Revelation chapter 21. Check it out. So let's be ready. The case for celibacy, to marry or not to marry, why does Paul think being single is the best? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 32, I, Paul, want you to be free from anxieties. <laughs> That's why he thinks being single is the best. A man who is unmarried is anxious about the things of the Lord and how he may please the Lord. Being single offers freedom from distraction. Being single offers focus. 1 Corinthians seven thirty-three. But a man who is married is anxious about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. Thus, his interests are divided. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Paul is skillful in his use of the word anxious here to show how anxiety can be used well and how anxiety can be used to distract. What does the Bible tell us? Stop worrying about anything. Be anxious for nothing. So the married man bounces between his duty to God and his duty to his family. His interests are indeed divided. 1 Corinthians 7.34 continuing, The woman who is unmarried and a virgin is anxious about the things of the Lord, that she may be both holy in body and in spirit. And holy in body and spirit means holy in every way. Having capacity to give herself to the Lord. That's what focus is for the single, that they're giving themselves in service to the Lord. But the woman who is married is anxious about the things of the world and how she may please her husband. And that is built into women. From, from Eve, it is built into women to be obsessed with their husbands. That's awesome. Now, to the fiancé, and again, if it's 1E, it's the male. 1 Corinthians 7.35, This I say about being single for your very own benefit, not to put a noose around your neck because you want to marry, but I'm saying this to promote what is appropriate to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. Paul is saying, all of you have freedom. Do as you please. I'm just letting you know what's practical. All right, and I already told you about my sons. I don't want them to get married until they're 40, but it's none of my business. So they'll probably, uh, because I want them to get married when they're 40, they'll probably get married within the next year, both of them. Anyway. But if any man thinks that he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin fiance, notice the two E's, which is a reference to women, the female engaged person, especially if he is filled with sexual passion. Do I have that up? There it is. If any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin fiance, the female who he is betrothed to, promised to, 
especially if he is filled with sexual passion, and it is bound to happen. Let him do what he chooses to do. He does not sin by being filled with sexual passion, but it's better for them to get married. Right Now, this is a continuation of what Paul was saying earlier, and this is where the New American Standard Version deviates because it starts talking about a father and daughter here, and I don't believe that that's what this passage is saying. I think this part of the passage connects to what he was saying earlier. If you burn with sexual passion, it's probably best that you get married. All right, 1 Corinthians 7.37. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no sexual necessity, but has control over his own sexual will, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his virgin pure, he does well. So, if you ha- you're engaged and you're a horny toad, you probably should go on and get married. If you can keep yourself under control, wait until the right time that you choose. That's all he's saying here. That's pretty easy. 1 Corinthians 7.38. So then, he who marries his virgin does well, and he who does not marry marry his virgin does better. Paul, the single celibate guy, just keeps on selling that single celibate deal. It's beautiful. All right, finally to the widows. Widows are women whose husbands have died. Earlier in the passage, he talked about young widows, and the essence of what he was saying earlier in the passage is young widows get back in the game. What he's saying to older widows is chill. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she's free to be married to whom she wishes. Only if she marries, she should marry someone who is in union with the Lord. What he's saying is widows, if you're older and you choose to get married, which is perfectly okay, marry a believer in Christ. 1 Corinthians 7.40, But in my opinion, a widow is happier if she remains as she is, a widow. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God on my side on that. That's what Paul is saying. So, there it is. We're through a very tough passage. And to marry or not to marry, it's up to you. Isn't that one of the great things about the Bible? See, freedom. You want to get married? It's up to you. But with freedom comes responsibility. And I always kind of chuckle with people who get married because they're saying, I want trouble. Amen? I want trouble. And I want you to be the person who gives me the trouble. That's awesome. And then they regret it. And then after they regret it, then you have to see what you're going to do after that. Right? Because that's what happens in every marriage. You marry the person, and you, I love them. Then you find out, oh, it's the Antichrist I picked. And then, okay, what are you going to do next? It's it's exactly what happens in the spiritual life. Right? You're all into God, and then you go, I don't like God anymore. He didn't do what I was saying. Okay, now what's next? What are you going to do? You're going to realize he's the best? Or are you going to do your own program? I don't recommend you do your own program. All right. So that's the lesson. We will pick it up next week with 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I think we're going to get into idol worship, which should be a really interesting study. All right. So the closing moments of our lesson are 
what the closing moments of our lesson always are, and it's the opportunity for anyone who does not have a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to have a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because that takes about 30 seconds. And I always like to point this out to our to our guests that no one who comes to Barah Ministries has an excuse for not knowing exactly what it takes to get to heaven. And it will perhaps fly in the face of everything you've ever been told. So the closing moments of our study are for the benefit of anyone who doesn't have a personal relationship with the sovereign God of the universe, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We want you to know that God wants you. And after hearing the open opening comments, an atheist would say, there is no God. God doesn't exist. Well, the Bible has a different view. And even though people think the Bible is just a bunch of stories, the Apostle John makes the function of the Bible crystal clear in John chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things written here in the Bible have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God in human form, and that by believing in him, You may have the resurrection life, eternal life, in his name. Philosopher Blaise Pascal, in what has come to be known as Pascal's Wager, says that human beings bet with their lives that God either exists or he does not. Pascal is right. So if you're an atheist, you would do well to at least consider what the Bible has to say. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says this, All creatures have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, As it is written, there is no creature who is righteous, not even one. Why is that a problem? Because you need righteousness to get into heaven. And if there's no creature who is righteous, and you are not righteous the moment you sin, that's big trouble for you. And big trouble for the atheists. And since the atheists are created creatures, human beings, they would do well to be curious about exactly what the Bible is proposing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, it says this, All in union with Adam at physical birth, and that is every human who comes to the earth, were born physically alive and spiritually dead because Adam's original sin is imputed to us at the moment of physical birth, and that means we are set to die the second death in the lake of fire. That's horrible news for an atheist, and it's horrible news for all human beings because all of us are born in that condition. But the good news is that the Lord has an interesting attitude toward all of his creatures, even those who think there is no God. Second Peter chapter 3, verse uh, 9 says this, the Lord is not slow about his promise of salvation as some accuse him of. Instead, he is patient towards you unbelievers, including atheists, not wishing for any of you to perish in the lake of fire, but for all of you to come to repentance, which is a change of mind about having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible claims that God exists and that God lives in heaven. So how can you get to heaven to live with him? If you're an atheist and you think Pascal was right, there's no downside to believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right where you sit right now, you can tell God the Father that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the moment of eternal life for you. 
Acts chapter 16, verse 31 says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is an atheist's acknowledgement that if there is a God, it might be smart to place faith in him. John chapter 14, verse 6 says this, Jesus said to the doubting apostle Thomas, I am the way to salvation, I am the truth through the word of God, and I am the resurrection life, eternal life. And no one comes to the Father in heaven but through believing in me. No creature can do a thing to get to heaven on his own. Romans chapter 11, verse 6 says this, If salvation is by grace, a free gift from God, and of course it is, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What does religion tell you? Yeah, you believe in Christ, but you've got to keep the sacraments. Yeah, you believe in Christ, but you've got to be baptized. Yeah, you believe in Christ, but you can't sin anymore. Because if you sin, it means you have a head belief and not a heart belief. B.S. 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 God's grace makes your salvation a free gift to you. If you have to work for a gift, then the work makes you deserve the gift. In salvation, there's no way for you to impress God enough that he would allow you to save yourself. So, it's very wise to let God save you because once God does a thing, he never changes his mind. So heed the warning in John chapter 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has the resurrection life, eternal life, right at that moment. It is not a future event. It's an instant event. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. Who is this God that saves you? The Apostle Paul describes the Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. He says, I, Paul, deliver to you as of first importance the gospel message I also received, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from all the pretenders, because he died, but he rose from the dead. The apostle Peter reminds us of the words of the Old Testament prophet Joel in Acts chapter 2, verse 21. It shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Remember the thief on the cross who was being crucified next to Jesus? Nine words for salvation. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. If you're an atheist, I encourage you to keep on investigating to see if you're right about there being no God. And if you're not right, and you think there may be a God, there's plenty of room for you in heaven. You are welcome to join all of us. We'll even give you a mansion. All right, so what are fathers commanded to do? They are to emulate God the Father. They plan, they protect, they provide, and they are present for their families, especially the children. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, shares God's attitude about delinquent fathers. It says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch. Well, here's June Murphy to sing about the ultimate father, God the Father, in her song, Father, I'm Yours. 
Father, I'm yours, your wanted child. You chose me for your very own. Father, I'm yours, your wanted child. You sent Christ to be my cornerstone as your wanted child your love's not like the love of man you love unconditionally Adopting me, Father, I'm yours, your wanted child, your perfect plan has set me free. As your wanted child, I'm yours, you give me your best, my destiny. Oh, oh, oh. 
Now to Jesus Christ, the one who's able to keep you from stumbling and the one who's able to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just thank you for giving us the direction we need in our lives. You are the, the, the hand that is behind everything that goes on in the universe. You are the planner of everything that happens for all eternity. And we're just grateful to you for planning a perfect life for each one of us with all the ups and downs that you blend into it to take us to the spiritual gymnasium and to make us stronger by tearing us down and building us up again for the victory that you gave us at the cross through your Son. And we just pray for everybody in our periphery that you open our spiritual eyes to those who need saving and that you allow us to share your gospel message with them in such a way that they can hear it and respond positively to it. And we pray that we make a difference with everyone we meet, one conversation at a time. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming. Thanks for watching. And thanks for listening.